All right, how is everybody? It's uh, Saturday night. I've been a little hit and miss this week with my podcast. I don't know how many of you regular listeners there are out there, but I apologize. You know, I was setting the bar pretty high early on. It was every day, maybe not the weekends, or maybe it started out where it was every day, but Sunday, and then that became Saturday and Sunday. And believe it or not, even though the stores are both closed, just the, uh, we're only, we're only allowing one person in each store for physical distancing reasons. And I've been that person in Ballard. And so I've been doing six days a week in Ballard and then Dan, Emily, and Isaiah have been sorting out the the days at Capitol Hill. And so it's crazy because we're not open to the public. So you would think, well, how busy can you possibly be? But between doing um, virtual fittings via Zoom, taking calls over the phone in which we're offering to, you know, we're selling shoes and offering free delivery and free shipping. And it's especially the free delivery that is time consuming. Today I left the store at three o'clock probably. And, and I'm not complaining. This just is what it is. And I'm happy to do it. But I delivered shoes until I wasn't back home until like 4.50. So it was almost another two hours just driving around delivering shoes, which is um, ultimately great that we have the ability even to do that much business. So I thank all of you that are continuing to support us even through these challenging times. And side note, because I just caught myself doing it, I was I was taking part in um Gretchen Walla's Twilight virtual 12-hour run tonight. I'm gonna botch the name of it, I always do. Uh and I was I ran three laps with the family. So Amalia, Jack, and Andrea ran one lap with me. And then, well, three quarters of a lap because then Amalia got a really serious side stitch and we were doing a two mile loop, 2.05 miles. If, if you want me to be specific. So Jack and I finished off the first loop and then he decided he wanted to do a second loop with me. So we went the opposite direction and we saw Andrea and Amalia as they were nearing the end of their first loop. And then on the third one, Jack tapped out, but Andrea jumped back in with me and and did one with me. So three of the seven total two-mile, 2.05-mile laps I did were with the family. The remainder, the four that I did on my own, as I always do, I was listening. Usually I listen to a podcast, um... Lately, I've been listening to Gigaton a bunch, the new Pearl Jam record. But tonight, I actually made the decision to start at the beginning. And I didn't run long enough to get through all of them. But I wanted to start at the beginning of my podcast 
and just listen from the start. And and I was I was actually ah, impressed would be sound much too um my my ego and perception of myself is not that high. But I was pleasantly surprised, let's put it that way, by what I heard. And I found it enjoyable and mostly entertaining and interesting. But I'll be damned if I don't say ultimately all the time. And I just did it again. So it's funny. You don't realize certain um, cadences or rhythms you have in how you speak or words that you rely on until you listen to yourself speak and then it becomes glaringly obvious. So I'm not sure if it's nearly as obvious to all of you or not, but damn, I lean on ultimately a lot. So so that's going to be my one of my podcast resolutions to see if I can say it less than 30 times per podcast. But I digress. So what was I talking about when I said ultimately? Now I've completely lost my train of thought. I guess I was just talking about how things have been busy at the store and all of a sudden, you know, for a few weeks there, uh, it might have been a week, it might have been 10 weeks. I, I've sort of lost track of time. I felt like there was a lot of extra time in the day and I was trying to write more and I was running more and I have still been running every single day. So that hasn't changed. I was podcasting every day and and working too, but work was just a little less crazy for whatever reason. I guess we hadn't yet rolled out the virtual fitting and we weren't yet doing e-commerce fulfillment. And so it's good to be to feel busy and productive at work. I'm not complaining at all. The uh, you know everything's a give and take, and the the take in this scenario is that I've just had less time to sit down and record. And yesterday, if I'm giving you a little peek behind the curtain into our home and discussions we have around here, I was disappointed because I thought that Andrea had agreed slash capitulated the last time she was on to doing a talk about Western states. And I thought it'd be fun to do last night. And then when I brought it up to her slash pushed it on her a little bit, she she backed off of it and said she's not doing it. And so somewhat out of frustration, I didn't record anything yesterday. Frustration slash lack of an idea. I was you know, the frustration, I guess, led to uh, a mental block on some level in my creativity. But nothing brings creativity back like running. And so, as I've already mentioned, we did the um, Gretchen's virtual run tonight as a family. And I got four laps out there through the neighborhood of Ballard, which was really, I don't do enough I guess I don't do enough running of our immediate neighborhood. I tend, lately my runs have been in the morning. I get up really before the family's up and 
I've been running over to Carkeek Park and doing some kind of a loop through Carkeek, maybe through Blue Ridge neighborhood. A couple times I've gotten as far as getting to the Inner Urban Trail um, and coming back through Greenwood there. It's all been kind of North Seattle and out of, I don't ever think of just doing loops in the neighborhood. I always think of running out to a, a certain point and then coming back. But there is um, a strange enjoyment in the repetition and the the rhythm, I guess, of doing a smaller loop over and over. And tonight I was doing washing machine loops, so I was changing direction after each loop. And I, I ended up doing seven. Um, that took me just... Uh, like one minute under maybe 50 seconds under two and a half hours. And I really felt like I could have kept going. I I felt like doubling that wouldn't have been a challenge. But but part of me was, I, I know I've mentioned it on here already. If I'm being honest, I guess I'm a little bit scared about not knowing how much is too much to push and potentially hurting my immune system, just even if for a short, a short blow, you know, which may ultimately come back stronger, but even, you know, uh, like a letting down of, if my body has a force field around it, like a letting down of that force field, even for a short time while my body repairs itself, even if it's going to be that much stronger in hours or days, I feel like that risk isn't quite worth it. So I stopped at seven, seven loops of 2.05-ish miles, and I think that ended up being 14.3-something miles in just under two and a half hours, So, which worked out to like a 10.40 minute per mile pace, but it was a little quicker than that for them when I was running alone and with Andrea. The The first loop in particular with Amalia and the side stitch and whew, there was a lot of walking going on in that one. I think for two miles, and Jack and I were probably a quarter mile ahead of Andrea and Amalia, maybe even a third of a mile. When we finally, you know, pulled ahead, we still, it took us 26 minutes and it probably Andrea and Amalia shortcut it I think but it probably would have taken them 32 33 minutes to do those 2.05 miles so you get the idea the first lap was slow and then Jack and I ran a nice steady clip the second one and we were faster by a few minutes and then Andrea and I ran a little faster yet and then the four that I ran although they weren't super consistent. They were all a bit faster. Um, yeah. And it, it just, it felt great. And it gave me a lot of time to kind of reflect on the week and think things through about what's going on right now. And the, the week, not only in the store was busy, but I got invited onto Ginger Runner live on Monday night. And then I had a, um, a coach, a virtual coaching which I do weekly with our half and full marathon training program. That was on Wednesday night. 
And then, or no, that was on, yeah, Wednesday night. And then after that, I had a, another Zoom meeting with Kelly Van Hove, who was the PT that we co-hosted a talk on Thursday night. And then with all the virtual fittings, it's been way, way, way too much time in this shoe guy's opinion of time spent in front of Zoom in a, a camera. And I know I've already touched on this, but it's it's so hard not for me not to think I shouldn't that that's um, without hyperbole. I just dread seeing myself on camera and I get over it and I get immersed in the fit or the conversation or whatever's happening. It's not like I'm dwelling on it the whole time, but certainly at the start, as I kick on the camera, I'm sort of like taken aback by the guy I see staring back at me because I just, I look older and more weathered and I just, yeah, I guess older and, and more haggard than I envisioned myself. But it is what it is. The camera don't lie. So so that's that. The event tonight was super fun. And I'm really happy with the fact that I ran 14 and felt good, like I could have kept going. And so that's a fun, that's always a great feeling, whether it's a race or a training run or whatever it is, to to finish feeling like you've really still got something left in the tank. And, you know, for some people that might be the feeling you get after running one mile. Thankfully, given that I've been running every single day, um, I felt that way still after double digit miles. So, uh, So yeah, I feel like not only am I running every day and feeling like I'm in good relatively good shape or, um, you know, again, all things relative, not compared to old Brian Morrison, but 41 year old, uh, COVID-19 quarantine, Brian Morrison. I feel like I'm reasonably fit right now, which is great. So tonight I thought it'd be fun to completely divest from the topic of running and talk about, you know, let's be honest, my favorite topic of all, which aside from my family, which is probably less interesting to all of you, is Pearl Jam. And I got to thinking about it a little bit today because Eddie Vedder performed as part of Jack Johnson's virtual Kokua Festival. He was a, he and Willie Nelson were both late additions to the lineup. And, uh, and it was great. And, you know, I'm, I'm really, it's one of the things that I wouldn't trade the musicians from homes for normalcy or, you know, like I wouldn't take this over normalcy, but it's really one of the silver linings of quarantine and COVID-19 is the creativeness of musicians particularly is what I'm enjoying from their homes. We also, after we watched the Kokua Festival, we watched um, Post Malone, maybe four or five songs 
of the Nirvana set they did from his home. And that was phenomenal too. And I, I want to go back and watch the rest of that, but that butted right up to the 7 PM start of the virtual run, which we were um, about six minutes late in starting anyhow. So, um, so tonight I'm going to tell a Pearl Jam story. So stay tuned for that. Thanks again for listening. I, I appreciate you all. And uh, thanks also for your patience as I, try and figure out some sort of schedule for this. All right, so just to catch you up to speed, if you're somehow a first-time listener who's just somehow stumbled upon BMO's running podcast and decided to give it a listen, which seems preposterous to me that you would not have any sort of context for listening. But if that were the case, I will say it now, I will say it loud, and I will say it proud. I'm a huge Pearl Jam fan. And, you know, probably even more than I care about running, I care about Pearl Jam. It's true. Besides my family, uh, there is, and, and friends, there is nothing to me more important than Pearl Jam. And boy, it'd be a tough call, but if it was to never see Pearl Jam live again or to never run again, I would choose to never run again. How's that for a bombshell? Yeah, it's true. I, I love me some Pearl Jam. So, so Pearl Jam, you know, there's probably no one listening to this that's ever seen, let alone heard of single video theory. But in 1998, Pearl Jam released arguably their greatest album ever. Um, you know, one thing you ought to know about me is that though I appreciate 10 and Versus and Vitalogy, the big commercial successes. I didn't see Pearl Jam for the first time live until 1998. And that's when my fandom really, really kicked in. And so, so I love those early albums and I understand why 10 has the reputation that 10 has. But for me, it is not their best album and it might not even be their second or third best. Again, another bombshell there. So so I could pretty I could make a pretty compelling argument I think that Yield is their their best album. But um but I'm not going to do that here. What I am going to tell you is they made they in conjunction with Cameron Crowe, rather Cameron Crowe in conjunction with Pearl Jam made a little film called Single Video Theory. And it really just follows the the writing and rehearsing of Yield. And most of it is shot at Pearl Jam's old rehearsal warehouse. And so I saw this movie right when it came out. Now, I don't remember. Yield came out in 98 and single video theory is them rehearsing and writing Yield. So it was shot before, but I don't remember when it actually came out. But whenever it did, I watched it, I loved it, 
the the intimacy of it. You know, Pearl Jam, all the members, for the most part, have really shied away from the spotlight in a lot of ways. They don't do a lot of interviews. Um, they're, they're just a, a band that... Uh, they're they're far from faceless because I think Eddie Vedder is pretty recognizable. Um, but they've really, since the early mid-90s, they've really done everything in their power to to be out of the spotlight. So from a fan's perspective, single video theory gives an incredible glimpse into, you know, their intimate rehearsal space and the, the friction that occurs within a band, you know, the disagreements over who can get to an Ebo more easily than someone else. And the obvious tension that exists between Mike and Stone. And it's awesome. And as you watch it, you realize, okay, and this is going to make me sound a little crazy and a little stalker-like. And, you know, call me what you will. For those that know me, I think you know that I'm a very sane and rational person and not in any way psychotic or deranged or um, or stalker-like. But when you're watching the video, you can very clearly see the Space Needle at times in the background. You can see Lake Union. And if you can picture parts of Seattle, you can start to realize what now is Amazonia once was referred to as the Cascade neighborhood. And it was a bunch of warehouses and industrial buildings. And there are some railroad tracks that you can see in single video theory and a a couple things that you know, you can just start to get a sense of like where that space may be. And I'll never forget my uh, my mom, who is incredible and is more than willing to indulge my crazy fandom. She came down to visit, I think, both my sister and I here in Seattle and suggested that like, hey, why don't we just drive around and see if we can find that rehearsal space? Because I had told her about it. So sure enough, we drive, um, let's see, what is one, uh, I can't remember if it's Terry or Thomas now. It runs north and south, parallel to Westlake. But anyways, we were driving around in the Cascade neighborhood long before Amazon was there, which seems crazy for any of you newer Seattleites. But there was a time before Vulcan and before Amazon, believe it or not. And... We we drove across this track that looked identical to the track in single video theory. And it ran the length of Thomas, I'm going to say, but it might be Terry. One runs east-west, run, one runs north and south. Anyhow, I was like, wow, this this looks exactly like the track in the video, the train track that is. And this industrial zone here seems very much like what's shot in the movie. And sure enough, we drive by a space 
And I was like, ah, that looks exactly like it. And it says Curtis Management on it. And Kelly Curtis is Pearl Jam's manager. Again, I know it sounds crazy that I know that, but I do. And it's, um, you know, I would say that most serious Pearl Jam fans know that. But I guess that's, you'd have to ask around for yourself. And you you can start to form your opinions of me. I, I get it. And so we realized, wow, that's, that's it. That's really cool. And so from that day forth, Andrea and I were probably living on Queen Anne at that point. And so I would run to Seattle Running Company and every single run to and from the store and home would be a slight detour past that space. And many times the garage door on it would be open enough that you could see a wall of guitars. Oftentimes when I'd run home in the evening, you could hear the band playing and rehearsing in there. I never, I never, you know, overstepped my bounds. I just would run by it and take so much enjoyment in knowing like that's where my favorite band hones their craft is right inside there. And, uh, and that was that. And there was another time actually I was running along and I swear to God, I'm not making this up, but running toward Denny, because that's what I would do. I'd run, again, I'm going to call it Thomas. So behind the old Seattle Times building in the Seattle, the um, the opera, is it the opera building? The ballet? Anyhow, we'll call it behind the Seattle Times building. As I was running toward Denny, this Audi wagon is coming down toward the space. And Jeff Amon, Pearl Jam's bass player, is behind the wheel. And I looked at him. I must have made enough eye contact that he gave me a quick wave. I waved back, and that was it. I went on to the store and had, you know, the whole rest of the day for me was made because Jeff Amon had given me a quick wave. And for all I know, it wasn't even Jeff Amon. But um, but I, I think it was. I'd put a lot of money on that. Well, sometime... Okay, so... So I knew very well where Pearl Jam's rehearsal space was. In 2004, Pearl Jam took part in this Vote for Change tour. Um, and they, they played a select number of, it wasn't a very big tour, but a select maybe eight to 10 show date tour of some key play, key voting states. Um, leading up to the election. And Andrea and I volunteered for an organization locally that was helping to register voters and through and promote and do these rock shows as a way to get out the vote and all this stuff. Um, and I think Andrea was doing it out of the goodness of her heart because it was a cause she believed in. And don't get me wrong, I didn't, wasn't that I didn't believe in it, but I was fully into it for my own self-interest. And the rumor had been that there were going to be a series of Seattle shows culminating with Pearl Jam playing the Showbox in 2004. And 
for better or for worse, it's really clearly for worse. I've never been one to like seek out a lot of volunteer opportunities. And um, it's one of the things that Andrea's really opened my eyes to is I've become more charitable and I've donated my time more. It just wasn't ever part of, you know, I was essentially raised by a single mom who barely made ends meet. And so there wasn't a lot of charitable um, giving happening in our house. And in small town Anacortes, like that, that wasn't um, ever a topic of conversation was don uh, organizations you were supporting or whatever. Um, obviously, it was a long way before social media, going back to when I was in Anacortes, that is, and even in 2004. But um, so I was in it very self-interested, but I was having fun with the volunteer work we were doing. And Andrea and I were busting our butts for it. And the woman who was organizing it locally took a shining to us. She knew we were big Pearl Jam fans and revealed to us that indeed Pearl Jam were going to be playing the show box as the sort of like grand finale to this whole run of local shows. And that we, if we wanted, could volunteer to work the show, which was pretty much all pre-show prep and then we could see the show and we we're like yes absolutely so it was amazing and uh really one of the coolest experiences of my life and may honestly be the best story that I ever tell on this podcast though if you're listening because you're a runner geek this is not gonna satiate that that part um that uh that topic but um, so so what did that look like? Well, Andrea was designated to to lead the setup of the green room. So she was in the back all day, you know, filling out like fulfilling the band rider, whatever that was, peanut M&Ms, beer, hummus. <laughs> I don't know. I don't even know. And my job was I was officially the showrunner. And uh, that meant nothing to me, but probably for those who work in the industry, they're like, oh, yeah, you were the runner. That's cool. Um, the greatest thing about the day, especially in hindsight, because I didn't know much about him then, but I got to work with George Webb, who has been with Pearl Jam, I think, since the very beginning. He's... Uh, well, I know he's Jeff's base tech, but I mean, he sort of like leads their crew for for all intents and purposes. And that day he was the point person for me. Everything, you know, any job I'd complete, I'd go see George and then get the next job. And I got to do some really cool things. Like I drove over to Bellevue to Mike Lowell Guitars and picked up a guitar of a member of Pearl Jam I slid it straight into the back seat and drove straight back to the show box. It never even crossed my mind. Several friends have asked like, well, whose guitar was it? What kind of guitar? What, what was it a bass or was it a, an electric guitar? I said, I don't know. I've never, I never looked at it and I never even thought twice. I took the job so serious. Like I, I take my regular job at the store very seriously. And I always have, but I've never taken a job as seriously as I did being a runner for Pearl Jam and their crew. The next job that, let's see, what else did I get to do? 
I, uh, George sent me to Capitol Hill, um, to the laundromat that's right there at Olive and, Olive and Boylston, is it? No, not Boylston. No, 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 not Boylston. Olive and Roy, I, I don't know. But there is a, um, there's a laundromat on Olive, just as you're crossing the freeway and heading up Capitol Hill on the right-hand side. I went and picked up a bunch of laundry for him. I went to the Marriott residence on down on Lake Union and picked up both Boom, Pearl Jam's keyboard slash organ player, and his wife Pinky, and got to drive them to the showbox. They were amazing. I got to be in the showbox and hear Pearl Jam sound checking. And if all that wasn't enough, I then got to call my best friend Daryl and invite him to the show because I had all of a sudden an extra ticket or an extra spot. And then after the show, I was expected to hang around and, oh, the other thing I got to do was drive Matt's drum tech to Guitar Center to get um, some, I want to say it was drumsticks for Matt Cameron. Um, but he was great too. And he was telling me, you know, other acts that he worked with and toured with. And it was very, very fascinating for me. And uh, so then the agreement was I could watch the show. We were front row on the rail because we had been there all day. And it was an amazing show. And then afterward, I had to go seek out Jerry, who was their tour manager. And then Jerry would assign me whatever. And uh, so so I'm, there were several crew members that needed a ride to Pearl Jam's warehouse. The warehouse that was on Thomas that was not labeled Pearl Jam's rehearsal space or anything like as Joe Public, I should not have known where it was. And so they said, yeah, we just need to get over to the rehearsal space, to the warehouse, I think they called it. And I knew damn well exactly how to get to the warehouse. But I had to act as though I had no idea where I was going. And I'm not sure if I did it well or not. They probably saw right through it. But, um, you know, I, I kept asking like, oh, okay, sorry, where, where do I go now here at this next intersection? Knowing full well exactly how, to, I mean, I could have been blindfolded probably and gotten us real close to it. So, uh, so that was a hoot. And really one of my, don't get me wrong, I love what I do now for work. But one of my all-time greatest regrets, uh, right up there with blowing the win at Western States in 2006, that's a good question. I've never asked myself this question, but what is what is the word like what do I regret more? Not being able to stay upright across the finish line at Western States for the win in 2006 and the the acceptance of the highly coveted bronze cougar and the perpetual engraving of my name on the Wendell Roby Cup or or, as I was told by several crew members, 
hey, make sure you give George Webb your contact info. You've done a great job today. We were always looking for more help like this. And I didn't give George Webb my contact info. And I've thought for years, like, I wonder if I saw George Webb just on the street. Let's say I saw him at the laundromat on Capitol Hill. Maybe he lives up there. I would certainly try to talk to him and I might even tell him my story, but there, there's no chance that he would remember me. Or maybe he would. I don't know. Maybe I did that great a job. But, um, but I can promise you this. I wouldn't miss that opportunity twice. If nothing else, I think he would hopefully get a chuckle out of my story and my, my regret over not, um, not being more persistent in giving him. I guess it was really just a lack of confidence. I thought, well, I have this job at the running store and I like it. And the reality is like, there's no way Pearl Jam's going to hire me. It would never, never, ever work or whatever. It's just, I guess maybe a combination of, um, well, laziness wouldn't be the right word, but low self-esteem coupled with, um, hyper realism, like maybe being too aware of that'll never happen when there was actually a chance, maybe something could have happened. And, uh, I guess I'll never know until I run into George at the, the laundromat and you can believe you me. If I do, I will tell him and he won't recognize me cause I'm 16 years older now and wrinkled and heavier and all those things. But, uh, but I'll do my darndest. And, uh, so anyways, that was our experience getting to help set up the 2004 Pearl Jam show at the Showbox. It was incredible. All right. Thanks for listening and have a great night.